0: Please be seated. I'm a little loud. Thank you, Will. Uh, so, good morning. Four really fast things. Here's the first one. Kiddos. I love, Sadie, that you were just ready to go. <laughs> so, off you go, kiddos. Off you go. Uh, that's the first thing. Second thing, just want to say thanks to Joey, to you, brother, and to Daniel Kim that organize our services every week. There it is. Thank you, Liz. There he is. Daniel, I'm talking to you, Daniel. Thank you uh, for the way you guys organize services. Just so help this morning, if you were following closely through the service, you would have seen that you were ve- being very helped, guided through what it looks like to meet with God right on through. So thank you, Angela and AJ, for your prayers. So That's the second thing. The third thing um, is I just want to say welcome to our brother Graham, who's sitting right in the middle. There he is. So Graham was one of the first uh, elders of our church. And you guys think some of you may thought that you came a long way to get to church today. He came all the way from Australia to be here this morning. Uh, So, brother, we love you. Your impact on this church continues to bear fruit. Tell our sister, Lorraine, we said hello, and I look forward to lunch with you after service. So uh, and the fourth, the fourth thing is I want to say thank you to the congregation, to the Restoration Church, the membership of this church. Uh, this past week, me and Joey uh, were able to attend a conference called Together for the Gospel, and uh, it's what I like to call Disney World for pastors. So uh, it's amazing, uh, amazing preaching, amazing singing. There's 12,000 people, most of them pastors. Uh, one piano, one piano. Graham, you would have loved it. One piano at the front, 12,000 people in an auditorium singing hymns. It was glorious, uh, singing, we got amazing preaching, amazing books uh, i 've got my reading plan is set up for the next two years, and um, I got to visit with friends from all over the country that I know and love, stayed up way too late, and uh, i 'm paying for it. Uh, but I just want to say thank you to you, Restoration Church. You make that possible for us to go. So uh, that was not put on my bill. I bought a good number of additional books that will go and I'll read and hopefully you'll benefit from. So I just want to say thank you, Joe, on behalf of Joe and I say thank you for allowing us to be able to go and to be ministered there. So thank you, brother. Uh, I'm going to pray again and we're going to dive into God's word. Father, thank you for the Bible. We don't have to guess at who you are and what you're like and what you ask of us, demand of us. You make it clear in your word. And so, God, may you be seen as Lord and may we submit our lives to you. May we not be submitted to our senses, but to Jesus and pray in his name. Amen. Okay, so here we are in the book of Judges. We're going to be in Judges 13 to about 15. Uh, And we're going through the book of Judges, if you haven't heard. Um, My guess is most of you have never heard a sermon series through the Book of Judges, and let me let me remind us: we only have a few more sermons, maybe four more sermons in the Book of Judges left. And I just want to remind us why we're going through it. Some of you are saying, "Hallelujah! Only four more sermons." Uh, It's a tough book, and I got news for you guys: it's only going to get worse from here. I know y'all keep hearing me say that, but trust me, when we get into 17 to 21, you're gonna you're gonna want to be here to try to understand that. You can pray for your brother as he preaches it. But the reason why we're going through this book, not only, first of all, because it's God's word, we need to understand it. But secondly, the reason why we're going to it is uh, studying it is because something happens in the book of Judges wherein we see them being warned as they enter into the land to not adopt the worship of the gods that are around them, to take down the bad worship and to raise up good worship, one true worship to the one true and living God. They were warned to not adopt the worship of the gods around them. Uh, but instead, what we're finding as we walk through Judges is that they are adopting the gods, the worship of the gods around them, the gods of Baal and Ashtaroth and the And what we're finding as a result of this, there's all kinds of carnage and chaos and disturbing stories. You're going to see more today. And it's causing all kinds of questions. And the reason why we're preaching this is the point of the book of Judges is to warn us that you cannot adopt the false worship of the gods around you, but you must follow the one true and living God. And so we are not tempted to follow Baal and Ashtaroth, are we? That's not the gods that are around us. The gods that are around us, the idols that are around us is the God of self, the God of individuality. Uh, That's what we're taught in our news programs, in our books, in our radio shows, in our uh, music um, that we listen to, the movies we watch. We're being encouraged to be guided by whatever we think is right and whatever we think we want to do. And so as a result of that, we need to be warned against that false worship. The reason why we have the chaos and the mess going on around us in our own lives and even in the world is a result of us being guided by our own senses, the love of self. And this book is here to warn us against that, to turn from that lifestyle and to trust the one true and living God by following him. And the reality is, guys, we need to admit this. We do adopt the God that is around us. We do. That germ is in us. Even if we confess Christ, That germ of individualism is in us. You know, I was thinking about this this week a few years ago in the Life of Restoration Church. There was a germ called the stomach bug that ran through our church, and it was awful. Uh, It is one of those markers in our church's history. It was so bad. That germ got everywhere, so much so we thought about canceling church. That's how bad it was. Uh, but it was we had to cancel kids and community groups. But this germ got in all of our church, well, most of our church, and it was caused all kinds of mess. And guys, the reality is the germ of individuality is in us. We need to be attentive to it, checked by it, that we might worship the one true and living God. So, big idea this morning: sensuality denies the Lord as master. It's the big idea. Uh, de- sensuality denies the Lord as master what we're going to see is the love if the love of self is the engine uh, of false worship and carnage and chaos the steering wheel of the supremacy of self is sensuality if the love of self is the kind of engine that makes false worship and carnage go sensuality is the kind of steering wheel and sensuality then denies the lord as master All right, here we're going to go. We're going to jump on in. Two points this morning. I tried to trim this sermon down, but we got a lot going on here. So um, take a breath, mint, pray, be attentive. Here we go. Chapter 13. First point, mankind is consistently sinful. The Lord is consistently merciful. Mankind is consistently sinful. The Lord is consistently merciful. Now, you heard from Joey last week about the story of Jephthah. He dies and take a wild guess what we're going to hear next yeah you already know look at chapter 13 verse 1 and the people of israel somebody you all say it what's that next word what's the next word israel what again again did what was evil in the sight of the lord note that's word that next word so in other words as a result of the lord gave oh we love when the lord gives right Oh, look what it says. So, as a result of their evil, the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. In other words, the Lord gave punishment to Israel. And so, uh, the downward spiral continues. Israel is the kind of whore that runs around on her consistently kind and faithful God who never leaves or forsakes his wife. Punishment comes as a result Uh, of their choices to do evil to not follow him but after that punishment comes we shouldn't come to expect this right what comes comes mercy comes mercy right so this is what the god of the bible is like guys he's holy he's just and so therefore as a result of evil choices he gives us what we deserve he must but then god is not only holy as a manifestation of that holiness is his justice but also thankfully god is merciful He's merciful, giving us what we don't deserve. All right, so the Philistines here that they're given over to, these are longtime enemies of Israel. They go way back, the enemies go way back to Genesis where after Abraham died, they hated the Israelites so much these Philistines uh, filled in the wells that Abraham had dug. Uh, Most recently, though, as the Israelites had come into the land and disobeyed, we see in Judges chapter three, verse three, these are one of the nations the Lord was going to use to test Israel as a result of their sin. And here we're going to find what they do. And as we will see even more clearly next week in Judges 16, these Philistines are not only wicked people, they blaspheme the one true and living God and they worship a false God. You'll learn about that next week. And so as a result of the Israel's sin, the Lord gives the Israel, his people over to the Philistines as a consequence or as a just punishment for their evil. And so, guys, it would be wise for us to stop and be reminded again that there are consequences to decisions that do not follow the Lord. Yes, God is full of grace and mercy, but he's also full of justice. Also full of justice. His holiness demands consequences to wrong choices. And so don't think, by the way, that this is some, some, in some ways, just kind of an Old Testament thing. This is a New Testament thing. We find the Lord giving as a result of sin. In Romans 1, we find, uh, that God still gives us over corporately, the world overly, to its sins. And you know what His punishment is? He doesn't give us over as a result of our sins in the New Testament today. He doesn't give us over to the Philistines. No, he gives us over to whatever we want. That's his punishment. Strange punishment, isn't it? He gives us over to what we want instead of what we need. So his punishment for sin in the world is to remove his protective hand and allow us to gorge ourselves on whatever we want, leading us into confusion and chaos. And so, friends, it's important to remember that. If you find a uh, a law that is passed that is clearly violating the word of God, Uh, Or if you find yourself sort of, quote unquote, getting away with a sin that you know is a sin against God. No, that may, just your getting away or that law being passed, may just be a just punishment for God, from God. Our sinful choices always have consequences, even if it appears they don't. But Israel is handed over to the Philistines as a consequence. But yet again, we are amazed by the kindness and mercy of God. So listen to what we Read next. Look at verse 2. Then there was a man of Zora of the tribe of the Danites, whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not born children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore, be careful and drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb. And he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. All right, couple themes there that may be familiar to some of you. First off, we have a barren woman. Right right off the bat, that should cause you to go like that sounds familiar. For those of you that are familiar with the story of the Bible, this reminds us this woman is very similar to some of the the wives of the patriarchs in recent days or past days. Rebecca, these Sarah, these gals. But also, this also this account sounds similar because it sounds a little bit like Gabriel visiting Mary, doesn't it? Uh, This sounds just like that. So the, the point here, though, is to show the power of God. Namely, that God is able to bring blessing in the midst of barrenness. He's able to overcome that barrenness and bring blessing. And so the angel of the Lord instructs the mother of that child uh, that is going to be born to be under a Nazarite vow from birth to death. All right? So we've got this angel of the Lord. We'll come to it in a second. So he's going to be, the child that's going to be born is going to have this Nazarite vow. Vow from birth to death. Look over in verse 7. You'll see that's what it says there. That he's not just gonna a lot of Nazarite vows would have been just for a small period of time. This Nazarite vow that the angel of the Lord is calling him to is for the for this guy's whole life. Now a Nazarite vow means to be set apart. Alright? Now remember Israel is to be set apart. They're holy. So in other words, a Nazarite, a Nazarite vow is to be set apart from the set apart. Okay? And there's three things you can read about this in Numbers chapter six later this afternoon, if you like three things that a Nazarite vow includes three things, three main things. First off, don't have anything to do produced with anything from a vine. Don't eat grapes. Don't step on grapes. Don't eat their seeds. Don't drink wine, all that kind of stuff. Stay away from stuff in that are produced by the vine, grapes, things of the like 2 don't touch anything dead. That's the second thing that it means to be in a Nazarite vow. And third, don't cut hair. Don't cut your hair. All right. So those are three things. Remember those because you're going to see those three things play out. All right. So the wife, she tells her husband Manoah about this angel that was very awesome. You can see that there in verse six. So the wife, the angel of the Lord speaks and she says, there's a very awesome angel visited me. She tells her husband Alright, that he has come, she, and then Manoah, the husband, like most men, maybe doesn't trust his wife. You know, so we sort of need more information. Husbands oftentimes do. Maybe he just needed some more clarification. But regardless, you look in verse 8. Manoah prays to God to see what they're supposed to do with his child. Remember, the angel of the Lord is visiting the wife of Manoah. Manoah wasn't there. And so he hears about this from his wife and so he prays. What are we supposed to do with this child? Look at verse 9. And God listened to the voice of Manoah. And the angel of God came again to the woman as she sat in the field. Friend, do you ever wonder if God hears you when you pray? Well, you can see right here that He does. You can see very clearly that he does. We, we know from Revelation chapter 5, verse 8, that there is a bowl in heaven that holds all the prayers of Christians. And so, Christian, you should know. Don't lose sight of this. God hears your prayers. He hears them. He is your Father. He loves you enough to send you His Son. He knows your concerns. He knows your fears. He knows your struggles. He knows your joys. knows your desires. And so pray and know that God listens to you. Be encouraged. Well, mercifully, not only does the Lord hear Manoah's prayer, but he also acts upon it. The Lord answers Manoah's prayer, and the angel of the Lord comes again. I love this. Comes back to Manoah's wife. It's interesting why he doesn't seem to want to keep showing up Manoah. Eventually he does, as we'll see here. But uh, comes again to Manoah's wife, and Manoah's wife, sitting there, angel appears, okay, uh, he's sitting there and standing there maybe Manoah's wife says you know just sort of wait just wait just for a minute let me go and get my husband he's been praying to sort of understand just stay right here so she goes and gets him uh, Manoah then comes back and speaks he wants to understand more about this child that is coming the angel then repeats the instructions regarding the Nazarite vow and then in verses 15 and 16 Manoah wants to make a meal for the angel because because he does not know this is the angel of the lord now that tells us something doesn't it it tells us that this angel must have appeared to be something greater than man but a man nonetheless as a matter of fact Manoah asked the angel of the lord's name there in verse 17 and the angel responds verse 18 love this why why do you ask my name seeing it is wonderful Now, is the angel saying his name is too wonderful? Or is he saying it is wonderful? Hard to tell. But either way, this angel, friends, is no run-of-the-mill angel. We know right from Isaiah 9 that Christ is called wonderful. That's his name. And so I have a lot of reasons to believe yet again, as we saw in Gideon, when he was dealing with it in chapter 6, this is the pre-incarnate Christ showing up, being part of the story of redemption. And so here's what makes me say that. After after they make the offering, the angel of the Lord disappears into the smoke just as he did in Gideon's uh, offering back in chapter 6. And then Manoah and his wife, they rightly conclude in verse 22, look at this, this it's important to look at, look down there in verse 22, they conclude after this, they have seen the face of God. And so you got you've got you have God incarnated as a messenger. And then Manoah then reflects the teaching of scripture which says that anyone who sees the face of God will die. And friend, I wonder if is that your view of God? Do you believe that your eyes are far too sinful and his presence too magnificent that if he were to reveal himself to you right now, you might die? Is that your view of God? Or do you think of the Lord sort of like our secular age? He is nothing more than a sort of old man sitting on his rocker on the porch. Nice, kind old man to come and visit every once in a while. Or maybe he's just a sort of easygoing pal. God is just this easygoing pal that you kind of go surfing with. Your homeboy, your co-pilot some benign God that is like a flower that you put in your pocket that you can use at your disposal for your own wishes. Is that the God that you believe in? Friend, if it is, then you don't understand the God of the Bible. The one true and living God who was and is and is to come is the one that made the heavens and the earth. That's how powerful he is. His glory is so great that the entire universe cannot contain it. His holiness so pure that the moment we saw him, like Manoah and his wife in verse 20, we would immediately know that we were in his presence and know to bow in his presence. That is the God who is. And so this man-made God, who is as light as a feather, is nothing more than a myth created by the evil one himself. See, friends, this is one of the most fundamental problems of false theologies. They miss the holiness of God by their attempting to conform him to our values instead of their fearing him and laying themselves low. Every single person that comes into contact with God in the Bible is just like Manoah and his wife here. They fall to the floor thinking they're going to die because he is so great. And so is that the God that you pray to? Is that the God that you worship? If it is, and you're going to have a better grasp of what comes next in verse 23 Manoah's wife says that if they were to die it's a wise woman Manoah's wife she understands Manoah says we're going, to, we're going to die because we just saw the face of God but then verse 23 Manoah's wife reasons that if they were to die for having seen God then God would not have accepted their sacrifice and told them so many wonderful things that were going to happen wise woman And because they knew the holiness of God, they then had a huge grasp of his mercy. Did you get that? I mean, they think we're going to die as a result of this. And so because they don't, they then see God is so merciful. I think that's why so few people truly value the mercy of God, because they have such a small view of the holiness of God. They worship a God that is no bigger than a candle, and therefore they only shine as far. But those who do know the holiness of God and have experienced his mercy, like Manoah and his wife do, they truly worship and are truly changed because they believe the God that is actually there. And so make sure, friend, that the God that you say you believe in is big enough for you to bow down to. If he is, enjoy his consistent mercies. Well, just as the Lord said in verse 21, the baby is born and they name him Samson. We see the Lord blesses him. And in verse 25, the spirit of the Lord begins to stir in him. So these are these are big beginnings, right? Really big beginnings. So in this dark period of Israel's uh, history, we would expect a lot to come out of this child. And so it is with that that we come to chapter 14. So even though Israel is consistently sinful, God is consistently merciful by raising up a child. By the way, did you notice they didn't even ask for him? But God, in his mercy, raises up this child to begin. Note that word down there again in verse uh, five to begin to deliver them from the Philistines, even though God did not have to do that. He was mercifully doing it. Second point, sensuality fails, but God's purposes don't. It's going to be chapter 14, 15, chapter 14, 15, sensuality fails, but God's purposes don't. Take a look at chapter 14, verse one. Here's the child, Samson, he's grown up now. Samson went to Timnah, and at Timnah he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. And then he came up and told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. But his father and mother said to him, Is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all our people? That would be the Israelite people that you must go to take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. First impressions of Samson. He sees a Philistine gal and says to his dad, go get her, she's hot, I want her. I mean, that's, right, 21st century American paraphrased version. He says the same thing in verse seven. If you look dry down, she is right in my eyes. Note that language. This is the first use of that language in the book of Judges. It's going to end us with. Remember, we've been saying this all along. There is no king in Israel and everybody is doing what is right in his own eyes. That's the last sentence of the book, which is the point of the book to show this doesn't go good when you just do what is right in your own eyes. And these are the first words you're going to see. It's going to come up a lot more after this. We're just sliding further and further down samson wants this girl for no other reason than she's hot doesn't matter that she's a philistine not part of the people of god and so samson does not immediately strike us as a man of moral integrity the more that we learn about him the more that he will sound like a lot of modern day men that just want women for what they can do for them not women as women to love and to care for and so if you if you're anything like me when you read this you sort of go this is the guy that was going to be born And like miraculously, this is him. This is the one that the Lord will miraculously bring about through this barren mother? Friends, God uses crooked sticks, just like me and you, to accomplish his purposes. Well, even Manoah understands, as you saw there, that Samson marrying a Philistine woman is a bad idea. It's a wrong idea. It's not just a bad idea. It's a wrong idea. He pleads with Samson, Manoah does, his father, to to do as the Lord required to marry someone of the people of God. So just as it is today, the Lord required his people to not marry someone who did not follow the one true God. So to be clear about this, God was and is for interracial marriages. But he was not and is not for interfaith marriages when one of those persons claims to be a follower of the God of the Bible. Samson is guided by sensuality. That's his Lord. But you say, wait a minute, Nathan, what about verse 4? Great observation. Let's take a look at that. Some would say this verse kind of governs the rest of our understanding of Samson, so it's important that we understand it. Take a look at verse 4, chapter 14. His father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord. For he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. At that time, the Philistines ruled over Israel. And so after Samson expressed interest in this Philistine woman, because he was right in his eyes, she was right in his eyes, and the parents, they tried to dissuade him. We have, this is important that you understand this, doing Bible interpretation. We have something that Manoah did not have. We have the authoritative interpretation of the events. Okay? So Manoah is doing the right thing. He's calling them to try to calling Samson to try uh, marry a Israelite. But nevertheless, we see in verse four that this marriage was, quote, from the Lord. It, or it was from the Lord. That means that this marriage was from the Lord. It says, for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. Now, that first threw me off a lot last week. So the he there. I immediately thought that that was Samson. Samson was trying to do the right thing by marrying a Philistine gal to kind of take down the Philistines. It may appear to that, but that's not what it means. That he is referencing the Lord. It's referencing the Lord. For the Lord was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. Samson was doing wrong. And so I, I get that the he, I'm 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 concluding that it's the he should be understood for the Lord for two reasons. One, the Lord is the nearest antecedent, that's the one that's closest. But two, Samson is clearly motivated by his own eyes. There's no evidence of Samson wanting to bring the Lord's judgment upon the Philistines. And you're gonna see that's not really part of his story. It is maybe a little bit at the end. And so when it says that this marriage that Samson is lusting for from the Lord is from the Lord because he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. This means that the Lord is going to take the impure lusts of Samson and use his sinful choices as a way of accomplishing his good purposes. Now, we've seen this. We saw this a couple weeks ago with Abimelech, where the Lord sent an already evil spirit to accomplish his good purposes. We know that in the ministry of Christ, the father uses the sinful choices of the Pharisees and of the Roman cor- cohort to bring about Christ to execution, crucifixion. So we should not be surprised that our sovereign God could and would use the sensual desires of Samson in order to accomplish his good purposes in bringing justice to the idolatrous Philistines. So let's watch this all play out, shall we? Well, right out of the gate in verse 5, we read Samson goes to the vineyards with his father and mother. Does that make you pause? Should. Remember, what's that thing? Remember, Samson had this thing. Remember that? He had a Nazarite vow, right? Nothing related to the vine. And what do we see? Where, where, where's Samson hanging out? We're at a bunch of vines. We should immediately go, ah, not a good choice. Samson, verse 6, then look what happens. Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and although he had nothing in his hand, he tore the lion pieces as one tears a young goat. But he did not tell his father or mother what he had done. That's a strange verse, isn't it? Why is this here? Two reasons. First, this verse, verse six that I just read, this is here to show us the potential of the Spirit of the Lord in the life of Samson. If Samson were to live out his calling and be jealous for God and for god 's people, the spirit of the Lord is clearly then powerful enough to deliver them. But that brings us to the second observation, the second reason we 've seen that Samson is spending time where a Nazarite vow would not have him to be spending time, but notice the emphasis of the text on how Samson deals with the lion. Notice it says it 's emphasized he 's got nothing in his hand and he 's shredding this thing. in other words, Samson friends is in a rage. And he is not at all concerned about the second aspect of his vow, namely to not touch dead bodies. Not only is he not, not only is he touching the dead body, he's shredding the dead body. It's not like he sort of killed it and then sort of like, "Ooh, shouldn't have done that and ran away. No, he's enjoying this. He's angry. And that explains, by the way, why the author of the text tells us that Samson doesn't tell his parents what he's done. Why else would that have been there? His parents are raising him in this vow, and he's clearly violating that vow. But there's more. Take a look at verses 8 and 9. You see there that Samson goes back to the dead body that his vow told him not to. And he scoops honey up out of this dead lion, and he eats it and brings it to his folks. And yet again, the author tells us that he did not tell his parents, because they would have understood that he's breaking this vow. Also, by the way, notice the emphasis of that word there, carcass, touching a dead body. And so clearly, Sam is being ruled by his lust. We see how the Spirit of the Lord then can equip for the task of delivery over the Philistines. But it seems Samson is careless of his vow and careless of the power available to him in the Spirit. Samson seems most interested in himself. You'll see that more as we go he seems to be ruled by his senses verse 14 10 to 14 we then read about how samson then tells a riddle at this feast of his new new wife this philistine wife he tells a riddle that involves that lion that he just killed and had the honey out of and so uh he's these are probably these 30 guys are probably philistines he promises to give them a bunch of clothes if they could figure out the riddle involving this lion but if they could not figure out the uh, the riddle then they were going to have to give him a bunch of clothes and if they did figure it out, he was going to have to give them a bunch of clothes, right? So y'all think being materialistic is new, not very new at all, right? Samson wants some good new clothes. So the riddle, as I mentioned, involves this uh, lion. And then we find in verse 15, these, these 30 guys are having trouble figuring out the riddle. And so they appeal to Samson's new wife to get the answer of the riddle to him out of it. And the wife plays the old card. You wives, y'all play it well. You know, they said, well, if you really love me, Samson, you'll tell me the answer. Prefigure to what we'll find next week in chapter 16, where Samson does the same thing with Delilah. Samson does give his wife the answer. She then goes and tells these Philistines. And then uh, we find in verse 18... Uh, well, sorry, they, they, they go and get the answer. They tell it to Samson. They tell the answer. They get the right answer. And then in response to the these guys getting the right answer, Samson knows how they got it, namely through his wife. And in verse 18, Samson refers to his wife, his new wife, as a heifer. Husbands, don't do that. <laughs> All right? He refers to his new wife as a heifer that they used against him. And then in verse 19, we get this as a response. He's angry again. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him and he went down to Ashkelon and struck down 30 men of the town and took their spoil and gave the garments to those who had told the riddle in hot anger. He went back to his father's house. Now this is the second incident of the spirit of the Lord rushing upon Samson. So it doesn't seem to be that there Samson doesn't seem to be abiding in the Lord it just seems to sort of rush on him when he gets sort of, peaked up but what seems to be the motive of samson in this event of 19 what's the motive i think you see it clearly there in the latter half of verse 9 it's anger he's angry that he was duped by his new wife and that they won the bet on the riddle does it seem as though samson is motivated by judgment on the philistines bringing god's judgment to them no samson is uh, is thinking about himself Then you may ask, then, well, what are we to think of the Spirit of the Lord rushing upon him here, then? What do we do with that, Nathan? Well, like the prior verse, I understand this to be given to us so that we would understand the power that is at the disposal of Samson. However, instead of using it for the good of God and his people, we see Samson using the strength of the Lord for what? For himself. So the author wants us to see the potential of Samson and the foolishness with which he uses that power, the selfishness with which he uses it. And so like the woman he wanted to marry, he's using the power that is available to him in the spirit of the Lord to do what is right in his own eyes, not what is right in the Lord's eyes. The author wants us to see Samson's selfishness, which is representative, by the way, of Israel as a whole. Samson's life is pretty much a picture in miniature of Israel. Well, that brings us to chapter 15. We learn from the end of the chapter, at the end of chapter 14, after all this drama with the new Philistine wife, the father gives his daughter over to Samson's best man in the wedding. How do you think this is going to go down? She thinks the father of that bride to Samson thinks Samson, as a result of all that incident that just happened with the riddle and stuff and how she betrayed him, she th- or he thinks Samson doesn't want her anymore, so I'll just give her away to Samson's best man. In chapter 15, we see that Samson, in verse 1, we see that Samson does still want his wife. But yet again, notice why he wants her. Does he want her just to love her, care for her, build her up in Jesus? No. He wants sex with her. He heads home and finds out that his wife, though, is now tied to his, new, his former best friend or his best man. The father then reasons, in verse 2, well, listen, why don't you just take her younger sister? She's prettier anyway. Quality individuals we're dealing with here. I mean, just awful kinds of things. We've come to expect that Samson is not going to react well to all of this, and of course he doesn't. In verses 4 to 5, we learn that Samson takes 300 foxes, gather them in a circle, points them in different direction around neighboring crops, uh, Philistine crops, he sets a fire in between the tails of these foxes, which of course would have set their tails on fire. And then they, as soon as they get on fire, they take off at which time it spreads fire all through the crops, destroying the Philistines crops. And where do they, uh, we find that they begin to try to look and find who did all of this. And they find out uh, that it was Samson that had done this. And we see in chapter 15, verse six, in order to punish Samson, Samson, They burn his wife and her father. Disturbed? You should be. This account is here, folks, to show us what doing what is right in our own eyes leads us to. That's why it's here. It's a R-rated cautionary tale. We are supposed to be disturbed by this. This is not the only way God made the world. This is not the way, I should say, that God made the world. This is not the way he means for Samson to begin to deliver Israel from the Philistines. In essence, what we're finding here is this is all boiled down to a bunch of infighting. This has little or nothing to do with Israel and the Philistines. This is all about Samson and the downfall of his own sensuality. Just living inside of his senses and whatever he wants to do samson swears he's going to get more even more revenge as a result of this and then he's going to quit he says and in chapter 15 verse 8 we find that he strikes them hip and thigh with a great blow it says and then after this he sort of figures he's done he retreats off into a rock but while samson may think that he's done the series of events involving him is not so after this the philistines begin to raid judah and in verse 11, 3,000 Judeans go up to where Samson is hiding up there on the rock, and they blame all this rage, these new raids on the Philistines, on him. They blame it's him. And Samson says, he's, listen, I'm just paying them back. That's just what he says. And in verses 12 to 13, the Judeans promise to bring Samson over to the Philistines so this raiding will come to an end. It's a very interesting tale. They start, listen, Samson's like, well, listen, you don't kill me, like to the Judeans. They're like, no, 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 we won't kill you, but we're going to hand you over to the people that will. You know, that's... So they tie him up with this new rope. I think that's there to show us the strength of the rope. But yet again, when handed over to the Philistines, third time we've seen this, the spirit of the Lord rushes onto Samson and the rope disintegrates and Samson picks up another dead animal. This time it's the jawbone of a donkey, kills 1000 Philistines. There are two ways of understanding this event. Either this is the way that God is bringing his judgment on the Philistines or yet again, Samson is acting in rage and the spirit of the Lord is shown to us once more so that we could see what is available to Samson, although he's using it for his own devices. I'll let you decide which one it is, but uh, the overall narrative, I think, seems to depict Samson as one who is out for himself. And take a look at what he does after killing these 1,000 people with a jawbone. Look what he does. Chapter 15, verse 18. This is his response at the end of that. By the way, have you noticed we haven't found anything yet? Have you noticed there's something missing? How much have you heard J- Samson talking to the Lord? Zero, right? Here we go. Here's his first words. Tell me if what this might sound like if you were walking with a brother or sister and this was their first words when they prayed. And he was very thirsty, and he called upon the Lord and said, You have granted this great salvation by the hand of your servant. Stop. That's good. He's doing good there. He understands this victory came by his hand. That's a good thing. And he keeps going, though. it would be good if he just stopped and said, Amen. But no, not Samson. And shall I now die of thirst and fall into the hand of the uncircumcised? And God split open the hollow place that is at Lehi, and water came out from it. And when he drank, his spirit returned and he revived. Therefore, the name of it was called En-Hakor. It is at Lehi to this day. And he judged Israel in the days of the Philistines 20 years. So in essence, what we seem to be, what seem to be finding here is Samson says, "Listen, God, you delivered me, and now after you delivered me, I want some water. Am I just going to die of thirst? Come on, man, give me something to drink. And if you're familiar with the story of the Bible, this sounds eerily similar to the story of Meribah, where Israel, uh, where Moses strikes the rock and they bring water. Samson has miraculous beginnings ordained uh, of God and the spirit of the Lord is clearly at work in his life. The Lord mercifully gives him that water. And yet Samson seems to be governed by his own desires, not the desires of God and the good of God's people. And as a result, chaos is ensuing all around. And I believe, folks, that's the point of this narrative. It's representative of Israel as a whole. We'll see this more next week, but church, this passage, this passage is fits inside the larger story of judges in order to illustrate what it looks like when you do what is right in your own eyes, neglecting the power of God that is at your disposal for his glory. Samson warns us against sensuality. Again, you'll see this more next week. He shows us what it looks like when our master is our senses, our sort of feelings in place of the Messiah as Lord. From his wanting to marry someone he's not supposed to to for no other reason than she's right in his own eyes to his disregarding his Nazarite vow just because he wants some honey. To his abusing the power of God by using his strength to administer personal retribution to his enemies out of sinful anger. Samson shows us what life looks like when situality is allowed to thrive. With it only comes more confusion, more chaos, more carnage. I think, folks, this story is prophetic on our own days. Now, to be clear, sensuality is not a word we use much anymore, but it's just another way of describing, as I mentioned, the cultural moment that we find ourselves in that tells us, that calls us to give in to all of our urges. Obey your thirsts. Be who you want to be. Sleep with whoever you want. However you want, we're told. Because, you know, that's sort of who we are. And guess what? It is who we are. We are sinners. Disconnected from a good God. Separate from him. And yet having that echo of morality still within us. We are sinners in need of a savior. Folks, we don't need, listen, we don't need voices telling us to obey our thirsts. We need voices telling us to disobey our base thirsts. Because our base hungers, our base desires, apart from God, are ultimately opposed to God and in favor of ourselves as masters. Let me just give you a brief survey of some passages in the Bible about sensuality. So first off, take a look at Mark 7.22. Well, actually, I'll tell you what it says. You don't have to turn there. Mark 7.22, Jesus tells us that sensuality is evil that comes from within defiled hearts. Take a look at Romans thirteen thirteen. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarrelling and jealousy. Second Corinthians twelve twenty one. Paul says that he may have to mourn over the many who have quote sinned earlier and have not repented of it, the impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality that they have practiced. Galatians 5.19, now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality. Ephesians 4.19, they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. 1 Peter 4.3, for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in what? Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Second Peter chapter two is a whole chapter devoted to false teachers that devote that devote themselves to living to your living in your senses your sort of feelings. That whole chapter's there. Talk warning against false teachers that encourage that. And finally, in Jude four, I think the clearest teaching on this: for certain people have crept in. By the way, that's crept in unnoticed to the church, sort of place like this. The people have crept in here, who long ago were designated for this condemnation ungodly people listen to the language who pervert the grace of our God into what into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ so do you see how Jude connects sensuality to denial to the denial of the master Jesus Christ as Lord do you see that connection there sensuality is a perversion of grace notice it doesn't say a denial of grace not what it says. Sensuality is not a denial of grace. It perverts it. Because it teaches you to live inside your own urges, inside your own passions, your own desires. Let them be master and Lord. And Jude is saying, no, there's only one true master and Lord, Jesus Christ. And so, friends, the sexual revolution that we are living in is built on this idea of sensuality. Let your senses be your master and Lord, not Jesus. Whatever makes you feel good, that's what you should do. And we see in Samson what that leads to. It leads to unhealthy relationships built not on love, but on the love of how that person makes you feel. The result of a world guided by the senses or feelings is a world that is guided by broken compasses. It's a world full of Samson's and those Philistines. Soon enough, we become an entire society that has no fixed points to guide us home. Instead, we drift about in the ocean, rudderless, left to drift wherever the the winds would blow us along. No fixed horizon to orient us to the true north. Jude says later that we are like unreasoning animals, uh, understanding things instinctively, he says, and not by that sort of moral compass that God graciously gave us to lead us back to him. And so here's one way you can get behind this in your life. I mentioned this question earlier in our series through Judges. Just ask yourself constantly this question. If I found something to be in the clear teaching of Scripture that opposed what I wanted to do, would I be willing to submit that desire to Christ and not do it and do the other thing that God would have? If I if I found that there's an urge, a desire, whatever it may be, money, food, hunger, sex, whatever it is, and you saw it opposed the clear teaching of Scripture, would you be willing to reject your desire and submit it to Christ and follow Him instead of those desires? Would you be willing to do that? That's how you can read whether or not you are like Samson or like Jesus. Because Jesus, friends, unlike Samson, was not guided by just His anger and by His senses. But Jesus was guided by the liberality of God's amazing love. The Bible says that Jesus was tempted in every way as we are, yet was what without sin. So that means that there were times that Jesus was tempted to indulge sexual sins, but he refused those desires and remained faithful to God. That means that he was tempted by the love of money, but he was willfully. He then willfully refused those desires and gave money to others. He was tempted to be slothful, but he refused those desires and worked as unto the Lord for the good of others. He was tempted to be passive, but he refused those desires and accepted the responsibility to cultivate life. He was tempted by by Satan with power, but he refused those desires and submitted himself to the cross. Instead of abusing his strength as Samson did, He laid, Jesus did, he laid his life down so that others might know the joy of God and the joy of God's ways. And friends, because Jesus laid his life down as a substitutionary sacrifice on the cross for sin, having atoned for sins for those that repent and believe, his resurrection on the third day makes available to us a new life with a new Lord. Listen to Romans ten nine. It says there, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, not you, not your urges, that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You say saved from what? Saved from the tyranny of our own sinful passions of sensuality. Saved from that and saved to a life submitted to Jesus Christ as Lord, wherein we now can be free to live a holy life the way that we were supposed to from the beginning. Flip with me over to Romans chapter six. This is where we're going to end our time. Flip over to Romans six. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans. Chapter six. We're going to end our time here. I want you to see by taking a look. I want you to see how Paul reasons this out, how this new and holy life, a life that's not not. Not, not 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 having our see uh, our feelings, our sensuality as the Lord, but as Jesus as the Lord, re, re, uh, getting rid of uh, rejecting those base desires and trusting Jesus and following him. I want you to see what that looks like. Paul does this in Romans six, verse one. Take a look. As we, he says, as we are, as we to con, are we are to continue in sin, that are we to continue in sin that grace may abound by no means, he says. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? That's what baptism pictures, right? You're dead. You go down under. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism in death in order that. Here he goes. Why would we do that? In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the father, we, too, might walk in newness of life. Slide down to verse 12, then note that first word there. Verse 12, let writing to christians let not sin therefore as a result of dying to sin raising in christ let not sin therefore as a result of that let sin uh therefore not reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions do you see that word that those three letters are so big for the christian life let if the spirit of god is in us we don't have to choose to sin the same spirit that is in Samson to kill lions and do these, all these amazing things is in us to refuse sin. Let not sin, therefore, as a result of dying to sin, raising in Christ. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal, mortal body to make you obey its passions. Slide down to verse 14. For sin will have no dominion over you, Christian. For sin will have no dominion. It's no longer a lord. It's no longer master. Since You are not under the law, but under what grace, grace slide down to verse 22. Now he's writing to the Christian, now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves, that's right, slaves of God, the fruit that leads to sanctification and its end. What is that eternal life? For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Don't miss that last word. Our Lord. He's Lord. Not us. Not our senses. Not us. Not ever what we want to do. We get eternal life with Jesus in Christ Jesus as him is Lord. And so do you see what Paul's saying about the gospel? He's saying before Christ, we live with sin and sensuality as Lord. And it brought us death in the same way we're seeing in the book of Judges week after week. But through repentance of sin and trust in Christ's sacrificial death and resurrection, we therefore have new life. Now we are slaves not to our feelings, but slaves to a good God that made us for himself. We now have a new master and a new life. He is what it means to live. We no longer in Christ have to sin. So by the power of His Spirit living within us, like the power that defeated the lions and the evil Philistines and Samson, now we can utilize the Spirit to be free from slavery to sensuality, free from the land of Judges, and free to a new life with new loves. Most notably, our love for God and the good of our neighbor. Or as we call it around here, the good life. We can be free to live that. So I want to leave us with two lifestyles to consider. One is illustrated by Samson and one by Jesus. And Samson, you are the Lord. Your life is submitted to whatever you think or feel will give you the most benefit, the supremacy of self. A life, by the way, like Samson, that's happy to include the confession of God, happy to even pray time and again, but mainly to kind of use God for me. That's one option. And you see what happens as a result. I would encourage you to not choose that option. Option two is a life with Christ. Where it is recognized that He is Lord. All authority on heaven and earth is His, not ours, His. Like Manoah and his wife, we bow to Him and live for His glory. And out of love for Him, you live to love others with His love. You reject living for your own conveniences. In fact, like Christ and by the power of Christ, you willfully engage suffering and even inconvenience so that others may know the joy of living for Christ and his kingdom. Not like Samson. You ladies were inclined to hear from uh, Stephanie Lyon this week. Who's a wonderful sister in Christ. I told her last night when I came home saw her. Um, one of the things I love about Stephanie, she's one of the only people I know that does this. She'll say to us, we were talking about sabbatical and stuff, and she'll say to us, and it's like down deep in her, Stephanie will say, oh, I want you to have that. I want you to get that. When something good happens, she will be so happy for us. And when something bad happens, she's so burdened for us. I told her she's one of the only people I know that just sort of does that. And that just does it. She's not guided by what she wants. She's so interested in the people she loves to thrive. I shared with our brother uh, Thomas that I was going to tell his story. Thomas is in our community group. He's sitting in our community group a couple weeks ago. I can't tell the story, right? Yes. Okay. I, I yeah. I just want to make clear. But I loved what he said. It moved me. Thomas said, we're sitting in accountability. And Thomas said, and this just rolled off of his lips, by the way. He said, I want to get to a point in my life where I'm sitting with somebody else in a gulag chained up. And there's a tiny drip of water just dripping. And I want to get to a place in my life where I can make it possible for him to get that drip of water. And I rejoice. That's freedom. That's love. That's God. That's joy. Sensuality and living as it is a master. You're trying to beat that guy up to get that drip. Those of us that love Jesus and have been changed by his love, we live with new loves with a new master that introduces inconvenience and difficulty that tells us to not obey desires for the good of the glory of God and the good of others. And that's what we want. And insofar as we do that, by the power of God, for the glory of God, we have joy. And folks, that message is not being told anywhere else on planet Earth except in the church of Jesus Christ. That's why you have to come here every week and show up eager to hear because you're being discipled by false loves all the time. You stay away from this meeting, you're going to find your loves shifting away. Truth is here God is here and He is desirous of you to have Him as Lord that you might enjoy Him, bow to Him, worship Him, love Him. And out of that response of that love, you then go out and love others. Yes, life that way is more difficult. But do you really think Samson had it made? You'll see next week he doesn't. But Christ died and rose on the third day so that we might have a new life with new loves and a new Lord. And it's not us, it's Him. And He's so good. Let's pray to Him and ask Him for help. Lord God Almighty, we do thank You for mercy. We agree that we do have that germ of individualism within us. More than we'd like to admit. We pray You'd forgive us, God, for the ways in which we live for our own convenience. Teach us to live with Christ as Lord. And thank you for the mercy that makes that possible to we sinners. We rejoice, God, and beg for more mercy that we might passionately love you and love others and not live as Samson did, just obeying his own senses. Thank you for the Spirit of God. And thank you, Father, for his uh, strength that has us to choose to not sin, that we might follow Christ as Lord, our good master. We pray in his name. Amen.